Oh, man, we appreciate you for taking time out of your busy day to come join us. Okay, thank you. Man, I'm definitely interested, man. So let's let's just dive in, man. First, let's tell me tell me about Dewey. I, I think I read somewhere that you were giving it to an orphanage or something. Yes. Well, at the age of six months, uh, me, my brother, and my sister were placed in foster care because of our parents' uh, criminal lifestyle, and they were almost like criminals on the run from the law. And they really couldn't provide a stable home because of that. And they just pretty much uh, dropped us off and never came back. And, uh, of course, documentation that I received from the uh, Division of Family Services explained why all this took place and uh, how my parents' uh, parental rights were eventually terminated because of that. And, uh, of course, I wanted to learn more, and that's what prompted me to write you know, my nonfiction book, uh, Two Shades of Vice, based on the true story of an interracial couple's life together in crime. Hmm. Well, tell us, well, I guess we can start there. I mean, tell us mm-hmm. about that. I mean, how how that started. I know as, as a child, I, I know that question was always there in regards to, to your parents. Mm-hmm. Well, um... Like I said, I'd always wonder where I came from and who my mother and father, because I would eventually learn that I was not in my natural surroundings or with my natural parents. So um, I wanted to know what they looked like, what they were about, where did they come from, who their parents were, maybe did they have other children, and and it, just a whole whole lot of different things I wanted to know about them. So. What really opened the opened the door to that was when I went over to the Division of Family Services to get some documentation about my stay in the foster home because I was there for 15 years, from six months to 15 years until the, the foster mother died. I went to live with a friend of hers until I finished high school. But when I was reading over documentation about uh, me, my, my brother, and my sister staying in this foster home, it was saying in part of the narrative that – they were hardened criminals, and, you know, they had extensive criminal records. So I said, wow, that kind of like, you know, uh, turned that light on inside my head. So I said, let me let me go over here to the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department and uh, kind of like, you know, look into their, their criminal background. And, man, I tell you, after I uh, got all these, these uh, documents or these sheets about, you know, these police reports and then these criminal rap sheets and, and everything, I was like, wow, I could not believe that I come from a mother and a father that did all these things. And, and to learn that my father did, like, prison time in five different states, I mean, that wow. that really shut me out there in outer space somewhere. I was really blown away. So to learn about their their whole criminal history and all the, the crimes that they were involved in, oh, my God, I just, my, I mean, I, 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 that took me for a tailspin. My head was spinning after I learned all this. Was 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 this was this book difficult for you to write about, or was it exciting, or, or was it a little mixture of both? I would say it was a mixture of both. It was exciting, and uh, it was kind of uh, well. I, I wouldn't use the word sad, but it was eye-opening. I would say, and uh, it kind of like uh, you know, kind of like answer. I mean, gave me answers to a lot of unanswered questions, and um, I guess the exciting part was, like I said, just to 
be able to obtain information that, that really went into, like, deep detail about all the facets, facets of crime that they were involved in. And like I said, to learn that my father didn't know he was a white man, my mother was a black woman, and to learn that he did prison time in five different states, which, which included Missouri, Illinois, Texas, California, and Arizona. So that told me, wow, this guy got around. This man really made his rounds. And to know that my mother was out on the streets soliciting prostitution and, you know, and uh, consorted with a lot of prostitutes. And then also I think what was the highlight of learning all this information and gaining all this information was to learn that my father consorted with, like, well-known gangsters, a lot of Italian gangsters here in Kansas City, and how he actually did some work for them as far as, like, robberies and break-ins and hijackings and you name it. So, but to, but to answer the question though, yeah, I mean, it was, it was very, I would say it was more so exciting just to learn all this and, you know, just to be able to find this information that I had been trying to find for so many years. And it, 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 it kind of brought closure too. So I was really glad about that. Right. Your, your father being a white Irish American and your mom being African American. I mean, mm-hmm. what part of your life did, did you find that out? Or did you find that out early on? Yeah. My, my foster mother disclosed that to us that, you know, we was a mixed parentage, you know, we, we, we were interracial and, uh, you know, pretty much, uh, Prior to that, I had never seen what they looked like. I was only told, you know, it was like a verbal thing. The foster mother told us, yeah, well, you have, you know, a white father and you have a black mother and you, you know, kind of, you know, uh, of mixed parentage. And, of course, we we talk like maybe late 60s, early 70s before we even found out because I was born in 1964. And it was kind of still taboo, I guess you could say back then. And. You know, the people, it was kind of like still not really accepted by society, whether it was like within the black community or within the white community. So, but I would eventually go on to see, meet them and, you know, see what they look like. So, oh, yeah. Yo, I know you mentioned briefly that, that uh, your mom was, you know, involved in solicitation and prostitution. What what mm-hmm. other type of vices were they involved in, if, you, if I could ask that? Wow. <laughs> That right there, I'll tell you that 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 stretches probably from New York to California. But no, on a serious note, uh, as far as my mother's in, like when I when I reviewed her criminal rap sheet that was given to me by the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department, the Records Division. Wow, I mean, solicitation of prostitution, um, petty larceny, uh, vagrancy, uh, theft. Uh, wow. I think maybe there's some other things, uh, uh, forgery and stuff like uh, cashing bad checks and all that. But as far as my father, I mean, he had a very – well, most of my mother's convictions was for prostitution. You know, she had like maybe 20-something convictions over like a 10-year period for just like ongoing for prostitution. Now, as far as my father, his rap sheet includes things like burglary and larceny, highway robbery, uh Stealing gas ration coupons during World War II, uh, hijacking, uh, uh, selling or or fencing stolen goods. Uh, Let me see. uh, Solicitation of, like, uh, illegal firearms, uh, things like, uh, let me think, uh, cash and bogus checks. Um, 
let me think. Uh, I've already said robbery. Uh, breaking and entering, uh, drunk and driving, uh, suspicion of murder. And you just, I mean, it was just like the list just went on and on and on. And his, his, his he has a very, very, he had a very extensive criminal rap sheet that, my God, I mean, I mean, it's almost like you say, you name it, he did it. So when I reviewed his rap sheet, <laughs> he was a, he I mean, was a busy man, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. he was, I, I would say, to be honest with you, the man was a gangster. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't your Al Capone or your John Gotti or Carlo Gambino type of gangster, but the man was a gangster. He just crime was his life. And then when they get to the end of the crime, his criminal rap sheet, they tell you. This known this known subject has never ever shown any known ocu- legitimate occupation, which basically is saying he never worked a legitimate job a day in his life. Well, I, I guess I guess my question would be, and I'm gonna be neutral on this because I am uh, the talk show host. I uh, guess in his in his era and where he was doing his thing, I mean, I guess it could be construed that it was a legitimate, legitimate occupation to him. I mean, if, especially if he was in survival mode, let me put it that way. Right. You, you know what, you're exactly right, sir, when you say survival mode, because maybe he saw that as, as only his, his only means of survival. So, you know, he felt as though, you know, why go in and punch a time clock for someone when – Basically, you know, I can go out on the streets and I can hustle. I mean, I can sell drugs. I can, you know, I can rob people. I can break in people's houses. I can steal cars, or I can do all that. Because in the in the, in in some of the police reports, it says that my mother and father operated a body house together, where you know they ran prostitution through there, illegal whiskey, uh, contraband cigarettes, frozen meats. Uh, narcotics. I mean, they was just doing everything in this house, and uh, it was just money. He had bought this house for money that he had made in vice, and they were making lots of money, especially from the prostitution end, because they would have a lot of, per se, suburbanite white men come down into the inner city to pick up black women. And a lot of times, some of the women had pimps, and they would take them to these city city motels and stuff and do their business and, and then leave. But my father had it set up where the women who worked for him, because he was a pimp. Because in, in in a couple of police reports, it says that he was a known procurer. He, he was known to the police as being a pimp. And his girls would bring the tricks to, to that body house that him and my mother operated. My mother pretty much ran the prostitution end of the house. Why he, you know, did the narcotics and did the whiskey and the beer and the cigarettes and all that. So it's quite interesting. It really is. Yeah, I, I, I could see that that um, definitely that it would be. Um, tell us about some of the people um, that were involved in Two Shades of Ice. Wow. Well, uh, I mean, when you say the people were involved, like, what do you mean? Well, I, I mean, coming up along the way, um, you had to interact with some other people that uh, oh, helped yeah, you yeah. write this. Before, wait, hold up. Let me ask. Let me do this before we jump into that. I think we have somebody else want to ask a question really quick, and I'm gonna let them jump in, and then we can go to that question. Okay. Uh, one, one, one. You're on. Hey, 
Greetings. How are you? I'm doing just fine. I'm I'm sitting here listening, and I I almost hate that you opened my line because I am so intrigued by the story. Firstly, uh, thank you. I I want to congratulate you um, on your life and overcoming all of these obstacles. And I well, I want you. you to know this as I was. I was trying to look for every bit of information that I could, but I, but this is the first thing that comes to my mind, that there are so many people who have experienced the things that you have, mm-hmm. but they never accomplish or never seem to, how do I say, come around to a level of conscientiousness mm-hmm. where they can take themselves outside of that detriment that they were born into. And I'm using detriment for lack of a better word, only because I'm thinking about your parents' criminal history. Uh-huh. But you were able to step outside of that, being the writer that you are, and uh-huh. paint a picture for us so that we can understand what life was like back then. Because I, I want you to know you are, I'm not going to say that you are another Robert Beck because you are uh-huh. an individual. You know I'm talking about Iceberg Slam. But yeah. here you go giving us an actual vivid picture of uh-huh. what Iceberg Slam was talking about. Every mm-hmm. When you're talking, I'm listening to you. When I, when I was like eight years old, I was an avid reader, and yes. I would hide and read Donald Goings and Iceberg Slam books. So mm-hmm. I know about Pimp and Black Mama Widow. And when, I, and when I'm listening to you, uh-huh. You you paint a vivid picture because you talk about your parents. Yes. See, that's the difference between you and 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 Robert Beck. Now, yeah. my my question to you is this. Mm-hmm. I can ask you this quick question in order to ask you the, the question firstly. Yes, ma'am. How much time did your dad do in jail? Do you have any idea? Yeah, the long the longest according to his criminal rap sheet, the longest stretch of time he ever did and it was in the Missouri State Penitentiary was for robbery, and he did 10 years for that. But he also did time in Arizona for cashing bogus checks. He did, uh, I think, four and a half or five years in, in Texarkana, Texas, because he was down in Dallas, and he had stole a lot of gas ration coupons that the government had issued during World War II. And he did about four and a, four and a half to five years for that, and then he did time in uh, – Bakersfield, California, for stealing cars, and so the man made his rounds. He definitely made his round. But the long, but to answer your question, man, the longest stretch of time that he ever did was was in 1932 for um, uh, for, for robbery in the Missouri State Penitentiary. Okay, now that answers my question. Here's my question to you. Uh-huh. So we, we we I'm I'm listening to you, and your dad is a white man. Your mom black. Yeah. Now. Could it be that your dad had the advantage? He still had a white man's privilege, being that had he been uh-huh. a black man, I think he would still be in the penitentiary today as an old man or maybe have died in there. Because uh-huh. when I hear you talk about what he did was, I think he realized that when he did these crimes that were crimes against white men or the establishment is when he really got spanked on the hand. But yeah. it seems like to me with the prostitution and pimping in the black community, he was able to stay afloat and stay under the radar because those crimes were not uh, indicative of doing time. And you, I guess what I'm trying to say is they really didn't care. You know what, ma'am, you raise a very good point because 
me and a couple of friends of mine kind of laugh about that because we, we know them areas here in Kansas City very well where because uh, at his height, he had like six or seven women on the streets for him. My mother was out there one time, but she came in. She quit that and came to work for him and run the girls for him and run the tricks and through the house, in and out the house. But um, we often laugh about that because I don't, it's, it's not really always a joking matter, but how a white man can be down into a black community Soliciting black women on the streets in a black community because normally it's like okay, well if she's if she's a, a colored woman, they call them back then. She's probably gonna have a colored pimp. She's not gonna have no white pimp. But from what I understand, from the information that I received, and from what I hear out on the streets from from the old timers, and from even what my mother told me, God rest her soul, he had a white girl working for him, and he had like maybe five or six black women working for him at, at his height, as far as him being a procurer, being a pimp. And he he did all this in the in the black neighborhood because as a white man, he knew that that other white men, whether they were from somewhere near the inner city or, or out in the suburban areas, desired black women for sexual pleasure for for their little you know rendezvous that they would have with the ordalliances, if you will, with black women. And my father knew that, and I believe he capitalized on that. He knew he could make money from these white men. And their lust and their desire for black women. Of course, mm. I can I can honestly see the the relationship between the the two. Your, your your dad was a gangster, and your mom was a gangster too. So she saw the benefits of the both both worlds too. Exactly. They that's how they put their heads together. They knew in in the, in a life of crime they can make money. They can survive, and and they, I mean they they weren't going to become. They knew they weren't going to become rich and and live a lavish lifestyle from a life of crime, but they just knew together if they put their heads together and, and maybe a few little resources that they had at the time, that they could they could really make some money. And, and they, they made a pretty substantial amount of money. And then, let, let me, of course, let, it all came crashing you. down around them. Can, can I, let before you guys um, let me go, can I find out where I can get the book now? How can yes, I get ma'am. it? Right now, the book is is for sale on Amazon. It's in uh it's in print edition and also an ebook edition. And also, you can go to my website at www.deweyreynoldsbooks.com. That's www.deweyreynoldsbooks.com. But you can go on Amazon and look for Two Shades of Vice based on the true story of an interracial couple's life together in crime. And you can go there to, to, to get it. Okay, great. And lastly, how do you feel about Robert Beck, uh, a.k.a. Iceberg Slim, and his novels? You know, what, you know what? I saw, what you I think saw about a documentary. Real quick, I saw a documentary about a year ago on Iceberg Slim, and I know one of his most famous works was Trick Baby. Of course, I saw the movie Trick Baby, too. And, uh, I mean, I, I commend the man. I mean, he, he's gone now. The man is gone. But I commend him because he had something to talk about. It may have not been the most glamorous type of story or the most, you know, Christian-like type of literature or something that, that was so wholesome and clean and pure and all that. But the man had, had had a story to tell. He had several stories to tell, and I commend him for telling those stories. So, you know, it, it, I feel as though if you got a story to tell, no matter what level it's on, whether it be something of prominence or something that's dealing with the hardcore street gangster life, then I say tell your story. So he felt as though he had something to talk about, and he told his story, and I admire him for that. Yes, sir, because your dad certainly reminds me of white folks. You know that character, yeah, yeah. right, folks? It, it, it'll put you. It'll and, put you in that mind because because and before before you go, ma'am, off the air, it's like, see, 
not only was uh, my father this this procured because it's mentioned in police report because people often say, well, how do you know these things? Well, I have I have actual documentation, you know, notarized documentation proving who they were and what they did. So this is not stuff that I dreamed up or somebody told me. I have proof. But the Bob, what I was going to say is that um, not only was he soliciting, had women out there working for him, but they from time to time they would set tricks up to get robbed, just like you saw in the movie, just like you saw in uh, Trick Baby, how he would set some of those tricks up to get robbed. And they were into yeah. doing things like that too, especially when they knew the guys had money, when they carried around pockets full of money and everything, they would set them guys up to get robbed. You know, I, I want to say this to you. I, I wish you nothing but the best. I'm going to purchase your book. I, you. It is my hope that you bring this to film, that you have this manifested in, in film <laughs> and so that people can, because not not only, I want to say this to you, and I, I want you to know I'm serious. Uh-huh. This is the story of some lives that were lived, be it good, bad, yeah. or indifferent. But the, the greatness about it, is the the offspring that was able to arise above all the muck and mire and tell the people the story. That's what I want us to get. Do we understand through whose eyes and mind and belly this story is being told? See, we need to respect that. Yes, yes. And and I want to say this. He, he, one thing about that white man, he, I'm looking at the pictures of your mom and her profile where you can see her from the side. I guess that's the uh, booking picture. Yeah, um, it was booked. Uh-huh. Just regal. regal. When, look at her face. Perfectly mm. chiseled. Uh-huh. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, I do. think your dad figured out that, you know, these white girls bring too much heat in here. He got one. He probably said, no, I can do better in this black neighborhood. And I'm, like you said, I'm laughing, but it's not funny. But that is, even as a criminal, the white man uh-huh. has privilege. That, oh, and yeah, I get absolutely. That. No, no question. I get so many things from your story, and I want you right. to know it's valuable. Well, ma'am, okay. I was just going to say it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful story. It took me several years to write it. It took me quite a while to get all my research material, all the police reports and criminal rap sheets, and also information that my mother actually told me before she died in 1999. And from even some of the old-timers out on the streets that knew my father, the ones that probably in the 70s and 80s are still around, have told me stories. Hey, I knew your father, Mac Reynolds. Everybody called him Mac. Well, his name was Gordon Reynolds, but everybody called him Mac. And uh, But all in all, it's a very powerful story. They, can, they have some strong content in there, but it tells a very, very good story. And I believe that many people would get so much out of it because it crosses so many different racial lines, gender lines, age lines, you know, economic lines. And I, I just I just know it's a good story, and I, I feel so confident about it. And you should, you because it's tangible for today. And lastly, please don't let anybody steal it from you. Promise me you will not let people steal your life's work from you, because that's what happens to people. Now, I, I'm going to get out of the way and let you all go on and talk, but please no, don't well, let was, I enjoy talking work. to you, ma'am, and thank you very much, and I think you will enjoy reading the book. All right. You yeah, guys have a good one. Thank you. All right. Thank you, caller. Please stay tuned. Dewey, I, I had a question, too, because, yes, um, you know, I'm hearing you tell talk about your mother and, and, and your dad, and, you know, I could say, you know, they both were gangsters, not in a negative sense, but in a survival yeah. sense, you know, doing what they were doing in their era. 
and um, they both saw the benefit of playing both sides of the fence. But I guess my question, fast forward, is to you, because do you did do you or have you ever thought about the entre- entrepreneurial spirit that you have today? You got from your dad and your mama. You know what? Uh, that, that's a good question. I, I'm glad you asked it because I work for the IRS and a manager at work. Long even before I wrote this book, I would show her like um, police mug shots of my mother and father and some of the documentation that I had. And you know, she she had come to learn from just me talking about how my father, you know, was this career criminal. He had done crime almost his entire life until his his health failed him. But she said, you know what, your father may have done what he did, like in a criminal negative sense. You know, he was an entrepreneur, but I see you being an entrepreneur in the sense in a more positive way. You know, you you have those genes that he have, but, but you're taking it in a different direction as far as like, you know, not the criminal element or, you know, or doing what he did, but doing something positive, something Creatively, because I, I feel as though I'm a very creative person. He was creative, but he was creative in a criminal sense. I feel as though I'm creative as far as like, you know, creating stories and characters and literature and all that, and being expressing myself with poetry and and and, and literature and books and novels and all that. And so, yeah, well, to well, answer your well, question, yeah, we I have it, but make, it's in a different was sense. Was making? Let me. Th- there was a, let me give you this one. Was making alcohol illegal before they said it was? Well, we're talking like the late fifties, pretty much throughout most of the sixties, up until like maybe the middle or late. 60s. But see what it was. Okay, here's a, like as far as the alcohol thing was. From what I understand through sources, and I think my mother may have mentioned this too. That the most the most powerful Italians that we had in Kansas City during that time were the Savellas and the Comisanos. They were very powerful Italian gangsters. And they ran all they owned all the liquor stores, they ran all the whatever, the bars and clubs and strip clubs and all that. And they they were ruthless in the sense that when every now and then when a truck would come into Kansas City with a lot of beer and whiskey and bourbon and all that on there, they would hijack these trucks. And from what I understand on a couple of occasions, or assignments as they would call it, my father was involved in that, along with some of the other thugs that worked for these guys. And they actually would hijack trucks from time to time and steal all the beer and whiskey. And those Italians would take that same beer and whiskey and put it into their liquor stores and they bought where they wouldn't have to pay for it. Of course, they would do investigations, but these things were well planned and well plotted. So, yeah, then, and then they would give him a big cut of it by letting him take a lot of that whiskey and beer and put it in his body house. Because a lot of the tricks who came to the house with, with, with the prostitutes, they he would sell them whiskey and beer, and he would sell them drugs, I guess, like maybe marijuana or maybe heroin or cocaine or whatever he was selling. And then he would sell them cigarettes, too, you know, because he knew how to get contraband cigarettes through different sources. So a lot of the, the goods that he sold out of his body house, from what I understand, he was getting those goods from the Italians. You know, and I can understand and what, what I really um, can relate to the fact and comparing with my own story and the reason I asked because, see, my grandparents were bootleggers in, wow. in Texas. So, therefore, my parents 
were bootleggers. And my story was I was in jail at two months old, you know, behind wow. some bootlegging stuff. So, you know, that that entrepreneurial fire or spirit, you know, was, was given to me many, many, many years ago. You know, my hustle is different, of course, than yeah. my grandparents and great-grandparents. But the drive I got, you know, I have uh-huh. an exceptional amount of drive, <laughs> and, and I hear, you know, and I hear that same drive in you. you know, yeah, where, yeah, exactly. You know, because and, when you and, go back in time, when you when you go back in the time capsule, I've heard quite a few people, whether, okay, whether it was here in Kansas City, St. Louis, Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, Cleveland, et cetera, et cetera, there were a lot of people, especially our people, who were pretty much running, you know, like uh, whorehouses, running dope houses. Uh, they were just, they had their little hustle going on. I mean, they, I've heard people say right here in KC, yeah, my, my grandfather and my father, they were running whorehouses and they were, they were running like after, after hour joints and all that stuff. Yeah, they were called juke joints. Yeah, juke joints. They, because, because like you said, they knew how to make, they knew what people wanted. And I'm going to tell you something, my friend. Al Capone said something one time that made a lot of sense. He said, being that human nature is such that people will indulge in vice, there's always big money to be made in vice because human nature being what it is, people will always pay to, quote, sin. That's true. Yeah. So tell us one other question here. Well, I got a bunch of other questions for you. In doing your research, um, how different do you see racism, or did you find a lot of um, stuff talking about racism that your mother and father had to deal with during their era, era, you know, versus what people today I know a lot of it is camouflaged more today, but I know it's still very prevalent in today's society. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, from from stories that my mother would tell me, that they they dealt with a lot of racism, pretty much from both sides, but much worse, you know, from the white community. Um, the hard stares, the hostility, even some of the the physical violent threats, you know, because like I mentioned in the book. There was an actual e- event where the Ku Klux Klan had been watching my mother and father because there was a chapter, oh, maybe 30 or 40 miles outside of Kansas City where they were actually watching them. And uh, they had traveled to to see his parents because they lived on a, his parents. My father's mother and father lived on a farm below, I would say, like maybe 40, 50 miles outside of Kansas City. And on the way back from, from visiting with them, they actually were stopped by some Klan members. And uh, my father, being the ruthless man that he was, being the the fearless man that he was, he actually bucked them. And he because he kept a Colt 45 on him from what my mother said. All, he always had a piss on him. And somehow she was just saying how he was able to threaten his way out of that situation because they were both staring death right in the face. But as far as, like, the racism, oh, yeah, I mean, they couldn't go in stores without – mainly white people looking at them crazy or making racial remarks towards them or 
pushing them aside with with with, with uh, uh, shopping carts and all that, and calling my mother the N word while he's there, and you know, and like I said, making threats. We'll kill both of you because you know we don't believe in this race mixing. And of course, you know, at that time, the anti-miscegenation laws were very much in full effect. And it, and, and to be honest with you, they weren't married at first, but they eventually they would get married long after we was even in the foster home. But um, they they even were actually to cohabitate back then was outlawed under the anti-miscegenation laws, which pretty much is relevant to Richard and Mildred Loving up there in Virginia, how they were arrested, you know, for being an interracial couple married there in Virginia, how they had to go to um, Washington, D.C. to actually get married and make it legal. So, yeah, but to answer your, your question, though, yeah, as far as the racism, they, they faced some of the harshest racism that you could ever imagine. And, and, and even before they became involved with one another, they knew what they were going to face. I mean, they knew that. I mean, they weren't ignorant to the fact that, oh, everything is going to be so lovey-dovey and so peaceful and we're going to be so harmonious being together. They knew that they were going to, you know, experience a lot of harsh racism. Mm-hmm. Have you yourself been exposed to a lot of it, being that you got mixed parents? Well, when I was younger, I did. I mean, don't get me wrong. Now, even to this day, we in the year 2017. I mean, yeah, I, I still, I still experience racism. I'm gonna tell you what a friend of mine's father told me one time. Uh, God rest his soul. He's passed on, but he told me. He said, "Cause you know, you know, he kind of got when you fair skin and got that curly or straight hair, they'd be like." Okay, they know you. You look mixed. You are mixed. They know that you mixed, even though they don't. They don't have to look at your birth certificate to know that. But he once told me, he said white people probably hate you even more than they would the average black person. I said, why is that, Mister Hughes? He said because they don't like mixed race couples. They don't like mixed race children. You know, it's, it's something they believe. Oh, people should stick with their own kind type of thing. But yeah, I mean, I mean, because I can recall even. You know, as a kid growing up, they, I mean, I was called white boy a lot. I mean, I remember an incident where I must have been in, like, the fourth grade, and I was coming out of – the bell had rung for school to end. So I come out on the playground about to walk home. There's about a good 15 kids, and they all chanting together, white boy, white boy, white boy, white boy. So even amongst us, it was, like, still taboo, like, okay, mixed, you know, like, oh, because they were, like, just a surprise, like, okay, this kid, my fellow classmate here got a white mother or a black father, either a, a, a black mother or white father. And that was strange to them, and that was kind of, like, misunderstood by them, too, because they, they were taught, no, you don't, you don't marry a white person. You don't go with a white person. Stick with your own kind. That was instituted so heavily throughout this country until both sides, you know, pretty much uh, – even though you still had interracial going on, they would still come together no matter how much they knew they would face. But basically, it was a situation where they had ingrained it into people's minds, deep into their psyche. You stick with your own kind. You don't travel outside your own race. But as time went on, we all know the interracial started to more and more become more prevalent and stuff. So. Oh yeah, yeah I, we're I, not going like, to we, we not, not gonna even blame it on rap music either. Oh no no no, not at all. <laughs> we're not, we not going to no, blame no, it on no, rap no. music either. 
No, or, or, no, or no. sports. Hey, look, on sports, we're not going to blame yep. it on none and of them. You know what? You're right. You, you, you are absolutely right. So, <laughs> yep. And I know exactly what you're talking about, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, do, it, uh, ha, do you feel that uh, uh, writing this story has changed your life in any way? Oh yeah, because I have found closure. I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's been therapeutic for me, and uh, you know, uh, but but it, like I said, but it also just made me feel feel as though like you know a, a revelation has come about, and you know, it's it, it's something that it pretty much has opened my mind to so many different things, and how you know, because and I commend them because they, they're brave souls. My mother and father were, were brave souls because, like I said. They knew what they were going to face as an interracial couple. But as far as me being concerned, you know, like I said, when I first found out all these things, I just knew deep down that I had a great story. And I I, I felt as though it was something that can benefit both black and white people. I mean, people from from many walks of life can read this story and get so much out of it. So it's been very good for me. I mean, I I have really – I feel as though – it's, it's been like an epiphany for me. And so I, I just feel as though, man, this, this is a book that is like one of those rare type of stories to come down the pipeline in a long time. Well, I know you mentioned earlier that, that uh, you had the opportunity to meet your mom, but you didn't mention your dad. Did you ever get to meet him, talk yeah, to him? Yeah, I, I, I did get to meet him. He uh, he had a bad heart. He uh, I met him a month before he died. He died of a massive heart attack a month after I met him. And he died in 1978. But I got to know my mother very well. Oh, yeah, we, we spent some time together, and uh, she would tell me stories. But, you know, I kind of found out she was a very intelligent woman. I mean, she was a very wise woman. And uh, so I learned a lot from her. And, uh, of course, when I decided to go ahead and, you know, put this book together, a lot of the information that she had given me, as well as you know, the, the, you know, a lot of the documentation, was real helpful in putting the book together. So, oh yeah, me and my mom spent a lot of time together, and you know, and people say, well, you know, the question people have toward have asked me, well, do you harbor hard feelings toward? I said, well, I did. I did carry it around like on my sleeve for a long time, but I just learned that you know, they did what they had to do, not to excuse them totally for what they did as far as like abandoning us, me, my brother, my sister. But I came to just realize that they did what they had to do because of the fact they could not provide a stable home for us. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And and again, again, you know, like when you're hustling and you're on survival mode, you're moving and grooving and you're still trying to think. Uh, what's best for all concerns, and you still live in life. You're still trying to do the best you can with what you got to work with. That's right. Yes, sir. <laughs> so, what, what's your what's your what's your next step, dude? What you got planned? What you doing next? Well, what I would like to do is write a sequel, the next story after uh, Two Shades of Vice, which talks about our staying in this really bad foster home and. Uh, it, it chronicles a lot of the incidents that happened there, and uh, that, that's quite a story within itself, too. So I'm ready to, um, you know, uh, pretty much try to put that together, too. And Because people that have read the book thus far have asked me, you know, well, 
you know, are you going to do a part two to this story? Because the way the story ended and everything, I said, yeah, I would, I would love to. And I think I will eventually. And then, you know, um, like I said, I, I, I love to write. I just love to create. You know, I just, I'm at my happiest when I can sit down and just create and write something that, you know, that's really meaningful to me and hopefully be meaningful to other people. So, oh, yeah, I, I just want to continue to just keep writing. Mm-hmm. Let me jump back over on this one really quick. Um, dealing with racism and, and mixed relationships and doing your research, do you see a whole bunch of difference in, in how society dealt with that opposed to how they're dealing with mixed relationships and, and racism now, you know, because I know every time you every time you turn on the news, you know, we're hearing something about some political figure saying this, saying that, or mm-hmm. um, this and that. Do you see it, any difference between what was happening in the '60s doing what's happening now versus what's happening now? Well, I, I feel as though '50s, '60s, a lot of the lynchings of black men, a lot of uh, the bombing of black churches, especially down south. I believe that racism was very overt back then. Uh, I believe that it, it's still overt to some degree, but I believe it, it, it's something that's swept under the rug now. I believe that, you know, they, they're, they're a little more clever and a little more quiet about, you know, these racial tactics that they execute nowadays. Because cause my, my belief is this. i tell you this, my friend. My belief is, if something is is deep inside in you and it's just really aching to come out, that's what it's going to do. It's going to come out, you know. So, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, because of laws being changed, you know, because of discrimination laws and all that, you know, nowadays I believe that, you know, of course, black people, you know, have more civil rights and they have more benefits going on. As opposed to the old, because see, back in the old days, we all know, I mean, you can walk down the street and a white person can call you the N-word to your face. They can shout it in your face and you feel as though I have no other choice but to take it. But I mean, but nowadays, I mean, they do something like that, that, you know, there's going to be repercussions. You know, there's going to be hell to pay. But as far as like racism of old compared to, you know, in modern day times, I feel as though it's very much still there, no matter what arena that you step into, whether it's in the entertainment business, whether it's in the political arena, or whether it's in, you know, the the business world, you know, it's there. I mean, you can try, like I told a friend of mine, you it's, just, it's almost like trying to pretend that Mount Everest is not in front of you when you stand in Nepal. When you stand in front of this huge mountain, you can close your eyes and pretend that when you open your eyes, it's not going to be there. No, that mountain is still going to be there. So I look at racism the same way. You can pretend that it's not there, and some people are always oh, just a way of life, just don't worry about it. No, it, it, it'll never be acceptable to me because I believe that every every man, like Dr. King, every man's created equal. Everybody's the same, no matter how much money you got, no matter what your race is, no matter what your gender is, your educational background. The way I see it from a spiritual standpoint, everybody is equal in God's eyes. But the bottom line is some people want to pretend that it's not there, but it's very much still there. Yeah. I definitely agree with that because definitely people, it's just become a little bit more sophisticated. It's a little bit more upscale. It's uh, uh, on the top floor, but it's it's definitely still there, alive and, and to well, put it in, unfortunately. To put, it in better, to put it in better terms, 
it's institutionalized. Yes. Yeah. You know, like 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 one scholar said, like one black scholar said, it's really no different than Microsoft or Coca Cola or Ford Motor Company. It's an institution. Racism in America is an institution. It's institutionalized. Wow. I heard somebody tell me the other day is that uh, for, for if you in uh, professional sports. You know, the first time a black man gets some money, you know, he's not successful till he get a white girl, too. <laughs> well, you know what? i tell you this. i tell you this. It's funny you mention that because that, that can be like a 10-hour conversation, really. <laughs> and, okay, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you what a friend of mine told me. Matter of fact, this, this friend is from Chicago. He told me this. Okay, I'm not saying it's 100% excusable or try to, you know, try to mask it or anything, but look at it like this. Professional athletes, basketball players, football players, baseball players, the the circles that they run in, that's all they see. The parties they go to, the functions they go to, the charity events, et cetera, that's all they see is white women. That's all they see are white women. It's very rare you see too many black faces in the crowd. And you know, it. hey, those guys get introduced to to white women. I mean, the the owner, the general manager, the coaches, the managers, and et cetera, they introduce these guys to white women. You know, oh, this is Becky. This is Sue. Uh, yeah, this is John. He plays for the Rockets. Oh, he plays for the Knicks and whatever. Or he plays for the Yankees, et cetera, et cetera. So, pretty much all of them circles that them them guys has got, especially when they got that big money, that's all they see are white women. So yeah, I've I've heard that stigma too. It's like okay, yeah, a black man get rich because I, I I heard a black woman say on a on a on a uh, talk show one day she was she was pretty frustrated. She said, yeah, black man get rich. That's the first thing he do is run off and get a white woman. That's the first thing he do. He run out and marry a white woman, you know, and all that. So yeah, there's that stigma still there that you know these especially what and, and it doesn't even have to be. In professional sports, I mean, it can be in business or it can be in entertainment or whatever. You know, <laughs> the guy's successful yeah. and he rolled in some paper. Yeah. You know, their thing is, oh, okay, yeah. The first thing he's gonna do is go out and run, run out and marry a white woman. So. Hey, 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 Dewey, I'm laughing because, you know, uh, as men, you know, we were always taught, you know, the, we're the head of the household. You know, you get a good job, you take care of your family, your kids, and lived happily ever after, but a lot of the mothers was teaching their they daughters, uh, when you grew up, you you marry a good man, they got a good job, they can take care of you. you yeah, know, so, exactly. You know, I, I've, I've heard a lot of sisters tell me that, look, I'm going to go out and get me a good man, a rich man, I'm going to do this, and, and, and I'll be looking at them kind of perplexed. Because I'd be like, well, where are you going to meet this rich man at? You know, you can't afford to go to the country clubs he go to. You can't afford to pay these five $1,000 dinners that they go to. You can't get yourself into these yacht clubs that they belong to. So, exactly. you know, that's the, flip, that's the flip side of the story that you're talking about, these athletes that are exposed to these different women on these different levels because they're there at, at these events. You know what I mean? Where uh, a lot of uh, minorities they can't go to these events simply because of the financial situation. They just exactly. not on that level. <laughs> they just yeah. not and there. 
You, and, and you know what? You've raised, you've raised a very good point. You are absolutely right. I mean, because because of like, uh, as, or as we say, accessibility. You know, yeah. that, that plays yeah. a big part. Okay, let's say, for instance, like the owner of a major franchise may be hosting a party or a charity event or whatever, and his daughter's there. His daughter, who may not be nowhere near as wealthy as that family, may bring a friend or two along with her who don't have the kind of wealth and prominence that she has, but she bring a friend to. And, of course, they're looking around, okay, oh, yeah, there's there's such and such, and he plays for the Miami Heat and all this. So, yeah, I think accessibility has a lot to play with it. So, you know, but, but in the end, I think you should be with the person who excites you and the person that you want to be with. I don't care what their race is, you know, and I don't look at race. If that person makes you happy and you all want to be together, then I say you all should be together. Yeah. I, I agree with that 150%, man, because, you know, in my career, in my life, I've bumped heads with good and bad everybody, and it has nothing to oh, do yes, with the color right. that person's skin. Yes. Like I tell people, I find it impossible for me to be racist because of the fact, even as, as a mixed-race black man. Now, I, 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 we talking about my father. we talking about his his criminal career and all that, but he came from a family of 11 children. He had seven sisters and three brothers. And I've I've been I've been fortunate enough to meet some of them and uh very nice people and some of them have gone on to do well in life. I mean doctors and lawyers and business owners and et cetera. So, you know, I'd I'd be like, okay, well, I'm not I can never be that way, you know. And I've I've never seen myself that way, even though like I've 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 experienced it. I mean as far as like racism and oh, you know, we don't want your kind around here and all that type of stuff. But, hey, that's to be expected because that's just the way life is. You're always going to have people who are like that. But I, I don't let it get the best of me. I can tell you that. I never do. No, you can't because uh, there's ignorant people, like I said, all over the world, and I've bumped heads with some of the most ignorant people known to man. Yes. And, uh, some of them have been black. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I can I can attest to that. <laughs> some of them, some of them. So Dewey, let me tell. Let me see what else we got. You know, um, you have that book. So let's tell our listeners where they can get in contact with you because we got a few more minutes left. So you can tell everybody okay. how they get in contact with you, get your work, and all that good stuff. And I think I think Olivia and I need a copy of your work as well. Okay, you know, and I was going to ask you about it because I definitely want to send both of you guys a copy because you, you've you been so nice as having me on as a guest. Um, my website is uh, com. That's www.dewey.reynoldsbooks.com. Again, that's com, And also... If you want to uh, purchase uh, Two Shades of Vice based on the true story of an interracial couple's life together in crime, you can go to Amazon.com. Like I said, it's available in print edition and also ebook edition. So that's how you can reach out to me. Yeah, and for definitely, I want to throw this out there too. You know, for the listeners that uh, joined us late, you know, the show will be available a couple minutes after the show. You can hear it in its entirety um, everywhere. Just Put in Can I Play a Play, 
And uh, actually, you can put in World Movement. You can Google that or however you get your stuff on iTunes or, you know, links are on Facebook, LinkedIn, Spotify, and a few other places uh, that you can catch the show from the beginning. Because definitely, definitely, we're talking about some good stuff today and more interracial stuff, and we see more and more of that today than ever, ever before on all, all fronts. And every time you turn on your news, we see something that's going on and look like that's the way of the future. So do, yeah. do you see anybody doing this and uh, uh, turning this into a screenplay? Well, you know, uh, as, as, the, as the lady mentioned, the, the caller who called in, and uh, I mean, like I said, I've, I've, I've sold a few books at work. You know, I've ordered and sold a few, and... Um, People have read the book have said, "Oh my God, I can see this being a movie." I just, oh, I just know this was a movie, and I, and I told them, you know, as I would tell anyone that I see strong cinematic potential in a story like this. I really do because it's a rare story. It, it really, I mean, my mom and dad weren't the first interracial couple ever in the history of the United States. I know that, but as far as like them coming together and living this this life of crime together, you know, and just living on the edge and defying the odds and just blatantly letting letting law enforcement know we're gonna do what the hell we please, whether you like it or not. Right. It 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 really tells a very unique and powerful story. So yeah, I would I would love to reach out to somebody that, you know, that may maybe would would, would find, you know, find interest in a story like this. Well definitely we're gonna put it out there to some friends of ours because I'm I'm as I'm thinking now and I'm thinking uh about the movie uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne was in, you know, Harlem, and um, uh, 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 you you mean that movie where he played Bumpy Johnson? Uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah, Hoodlum. he played That's Bumpy was, Johnson. Hoodlum. Yeah, right. I'm seeing some some similarities, but some twists. You know, yeah. you know, with your dad and your mom, you know, playing their little roles and stuff. But you know, in that whole era, kind of sort of coming up, you know, and uh, you know, yeah. Look, I better quit telling my look, putting my twists on. I might get some I might get some writers I might get some writers credits on this. <laughs> oh man, that's a good one. You gotta get some writers credit on this one. <laughs> yeah, I might need to save my ideas, man, and hit you up with this one when we off the air, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but but you know, before we go, you know, and then like I said, like okay, when you when you look at the entertainment culture, I mean I mean, you look at Robert De Niro. Oh, he loves black women. I mean, you look at a lot of, like you said, there's even a few white women athletes that are married to black men. And I believe there's a couple actresses in Hollywood that are married to black men. And then, you know, you've got a few white men who are married to black women. And then then when it stretches even further, I mean, you know, whites and Asians marry. I mean, whites and Hispanics marry. Right. Whites and Middle Easterners, or whites and Africans, and et cetera, et cetera. So I think people affirm to themselves, "Hey, because I'm one of them, life is too short. And if I live my life trying to please everybody else, then I'm gonna get to my end, get to the end of my life having looking back and just have a lot of regrets. And right. smart people will say, "I'm gonna do what makes me happy." So when I do come to the end of my life, I won't have a bunch of regrets like a lot of people do have. Very good. Well, thanks again, dude. we got like 26 seconds, and definitely well, thank share you, the show. Sir. 
Yeah, uh, how can I send uh how can I send a copy to you and to Olivia? Email it to us or you could just shoot us an e copy or I'll I'll shoot you the I'll shoot you the address. Okay. Do you guys have Kindle? I got the Kindle and the um the uh EPUB edition, so I can email that to you? Either one, yes sir. Okay okay. Now on a final note, what okay, what what do you think I could do to on my end? Because I know social media is good, like Facebook and whatever, Twitter. But what do you think I can do on my end to promote this show or really? But but you guys, from your end, you do promote your shows after the interview is over with. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Now, we okay. We finished it out. We finished shoot it out right now. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Blog Talk, Radio, LinkedIn, uh, Pinterest. Uh, let me see. Google Plus. Um about a hundred more. Um, wow, that's great. I, you know, I appreciate everything that you've done, sir. And uh, I mean, this interview has been really good for me. And I tell you, I, I, when I can talk about these things, it's like it's almost like another form of therapy for me. Well, all righty, man, and we appreciate you much, man. And we'll talk to you soon. Okay, God bless you, brother. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you. Okay, bye bye. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW, void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.